Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. So joining us today is Robert J. Lowe, who is a faculty member at Autonomizu University. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm very well. Thanks very much for the invitation to be on the podcast. Uh, well, uh, given the, that your name is Robert J. Lowe, do you prefer to go by the name of Rob Lowe or J. Lowe? <laughs> Good question. Um, just, just, just Rob. Usually, <laughs> I try to avoid any uh, any celebrity confusions. Okay. So the paper we're going to be speaking about today is native speakerism among Japanese teacher trainees: ideology, framing, and counterframing. And uh, this is something that I have a bit of a background in, but I'd like to give the floor to you today uh, to talk about this uh, topic of native speakerism. So. Well, basically, first of all, what is native speakerism for people who have uh, have not encountered it? So I, I think different researchers uh, will define it in different ways. Um, I did my PhD under Adrian Holiday, who was the guy who developed the concept of native speakerism. Um, so from his point of view, native speakerism is, I guess you could call it a kind of Western chauvinism, which assumes that uh, the the people that we generally regard as being native speakers of English from the West are in some way um, culturally and linguistically the, the best suited to engage in language teaching. Um, and that people from other parts of the world, um, even if English, you know, is their first language, are for whatever reason culturally, you know, not um, not as, as as qualified or not as capable of, of teaching. Um, he has this concept of cultural disbelief. Um, the idea that people from non-Western countries have nothing um, to, to contribute to the field, essentially. Um, and there has been some work in the context of Japan, where, where we both are, um, which has uh, tried to redefine native speakerism um, to basically mean discrimination against anybody uh, on the basis of whether they are or are not uh, a native speaker of a particular language, usually English, usually language teachers. Um, I tend to stick to Holiday's original definition um, because I think that, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a kind of systemic problem which which emerges from the history of the field. Um, but I do think that you know, the so-called native speakers of which I you know consider myself one, they can also be affected by the ideology because it's an ideology which essentializes people, and when you're mm -hmm. essentialized, you're mm -hmm. always reduced in some way. Um, so you know, you often find complaints that. Language teachers are, um, you know, they're, they're considered nothing more than living tape recorders or, you know, they're, they're incapable of teaching, you know, grammar or whatever. Right. Um, so there are there are limitations based on on both groups. But that's that's kind of how I understand the concept. Yeah, I've heard it called in terms of like assistant language teachers in Japan of like walking dictionaries. Right. Yes. You're just uh, you're just a thing in the corner where the, the teacher will point to you and, you know, do the thing. Mm. And then uh, fill in fill in the blank. Um, when when we're talking about native speakers in the in the holiday uh, paradigm, uh, which countries would you think fall in that? It, it, we can use the, the Japanese frame to start with, but like which countries would fall into the concept of a prima facie native speaker? I think generally it would be the countries uh, that are included in what Kachru calls the inner circle. So the countries where English is traditionally considered to be a national language. So the UK, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, 
Um, although I have seen um, comments on social media saying things like, uh, you know, um, accent is incredibly important in language teaching. Scots should never teach English. Um, so <laughs> it kind of expands beyond, uh, you know, just the, the countries themselves to a sort of more uh, standard language ideology, I guess. But um, yeah, I, th I think generally though, that's the understanding. So generally the uh, the versions of English that are predominant in media. Mm, sure, yeah. Um, and that historically are associated with the language. Because um, mm. there are plenty of countries, of course, where English is also spoken as a first language or a second language. Um, mm. So places like Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Nigeria, India. Um, mm. But people from those countries are often not included in the category of native speaker, uh, mm. even if they happen to speak English as their first language. Mm. Uh, well, one of the things that I want to uh, come to first from um, your from your article uh, is that native speakerism is generally thought of in basically the same ways as Holiday framed it about 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and you point out that your the people who are the participants in the study uh, are teacher trainees. Are there any other structures, uh, the, the the media, textbooks, other things like this, other than direct intervention training that we should be targeting to address native speakerism? Yeah, I mean, um, like with any kind of ideological structure, it's something that's reproduced um, through various different channels, right? Um, so in this case, with, in the paper, um, I was examining the beliefs of teacher trainees. I was teaching a course on, you know, English as a lingua franca and native speakerism and various related issues. Um, and I was sort of seeing how their um, how their concepts uh, or their categories or their ideas changed as they sort of encountered these contrary ideas um, and for, where they found kind of internal contradictions in their own logic as well. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that that is only one, um, you know, area like through through training where native speakerism does get reproduced. Um, so another paper that I published, um, well, it, it came out in 2021, but it's not a, officially published yet. I think it's still online early access, um, was looking at uh, conference plenary speakers in Europe. Um, and we found that there, you know, there was uh, a, a very strong bias in favor of, of you know, of native speakers from particular countries. Um, and again, it was mostly in a circle countries, and often you had the same people popping up again and again at different conferences. Um, strangely, we we did the same research in uh, Asia, where you'd imagine, um, or we imagined that it would be a similar or worse situation. It was actually a lot better. Um, there was much more kind of local representation. But I think you know those kinds of professional events, um, who they choose to have speaking at them, um, mm -hmm. whose voices they choose to elevate and give legitimacy to. That also, you know, serves to to reproduce the ideology because it just gives the impression, especially to you know new people coming into the uh, into the field, that there are certain voices that are valued more than others. Um, so I think that, that yeah, there there are lots of different elements um, which contribute to the um, uh, the you know the continuation of of the ideology of native speakerism. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting point that you bring up about uh, plenary speakers. Um, uh... You know, in term in terms of value, I I've been at um fairly, well, I don't want to speak ill of it, but at fairly low level, uh, conferences in places like Korea and Cambodia, and you're absolutely right in the selection of 
plenary speakers mm. that these people turn up again and again and uh not wanting to speak out of turn or bring up anyone's um name without giving them the right to reply but uh people like uh, rod ellis mm. turn up an unbelievable number of times turn up and don't speak about anything in relation to the the theme of the the conference but they give their uh, set speech mm. and then they leave and i'm sure they were paid well for it and they were comped for it and so by just to go back to the the original point of my question uh is there anything that we could do i mean is there anything that we could uh recommend to conference organizers uh is the conference plenary or the conference schedule a vector for uh improving um what we would both agree is 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 a better way of looking at uh english use globally mm. yeah i mean i think um certainly you know when we're in positions where we can <clears throat> sorry when we're, when we're in positions where we can influence um you know the choices at, at, in, at those kinds of levels then we should be trying to um you know include as many different voices as possible um i think maybe one of the uh difficulties associated with that is that you know when when uh, i was doing this research um we contacted plenary you know uh, conference organizers and asked them you know what criteria do you use when making your decisions in choosing plenary speakers um and often you know they said we we called it a kind of colorblind liberalism you know they said oh we we just go on the number of uh, publications you know their their mm-hmm. level of um qualifications their <laughs> fame essentially right mm-hmm. um and but that of course you know is reliant on a bunch of other biases which influence who who gets published um mm-hmm. who gets the opportunity to study at a high level who gets jobs um, so, you know, there is this kind of um, domino effect throughout mm. the profession, which which starts from from the sort of very basic structural principles of, of you know, who is or which Englishes are valued in the first place. Um, you end up with this kind of, again, this reproduction um, of of, uh, you know, the, the privilege of particular speakers because their their English is valued. They can therefore get into language teaching jobs. They can easily work their way through the profession. Then they mm-hmm. end up taking these, um, you know, plenary speaking jobs where they again reproduce the same uh, conditions right. That, right. that put them in that position in the first place. Um, so it's it's a really it's a really big struggle. Um, and I think it's it's not just a case of of saying we should change who speaks at conferences. Um, it's you know it it it's something that is reliant on a sort of much more global structural change. Um, how we get there, of course, is, you know, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> well, let's, let's think more concretely and let's let's get, mm. get get back to your paper, because uh, it's 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 on the it's on the idea of framing. Mm. And I, I noted reading the participants in your study that they began their phrases with uh, I thought or I think in their responses and epistemologically speaking this is only kind of one half of the equation so there are things that you think that are not true and there are things that are true that you do not know but once you think about facts you create unique knowledge in and of yourself Mm. um 
Uh, do you think that the interviewees left with concrete knowledge and applicable examples that they can use in their course or uh, class preparations as teachers? Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned the idea of framing. Um, this is this is a thing that I'm working on. I've, I've got a new book on the way, actually, which is developing this method uh, of frame analysis, um, which I've, I'm kind of basing on the work of Goffman and um, uh, social movement researchers and so on. Um, and the idea is looking at the way that people frame things, which sort of um, represents their understanding, then looking at conflicts between that um, and what they sort of recognize about the world in which they live um, mm. and, and showing mm. that there are sort of internal mm. contradictions between them. Um, and there's a there's a phrase which is used with regard to critical theory, which I draw on, which is the idea of restoring actuality to false appearance. Um, I think Trent Schroyer says it. Um, and the idea is basically, you know, they have this 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 idea about how the world works. Um, and they, they also have at some level an awareness that that isn't necessarily the case. Um, mm. And, you know, the job of the researcher in, in this model is to is to help them sort of or put those two points into dialectical relation. So you you kind of bring this contradiction to the surface to a level of consciousness, and then mm. they'll they'll kind of figure out what to do with that. Um, and yeah, I think in this paper, certainly the um, the the uh, the course that we were that this, the participants were studying on was focused on English as a lingua franca, and it was particularly on practical. Uh, ways of of actually using these ideas in the classroom. So these were teacher trainees. Um, we studied the concepts of native speakerism and English as lingua franca and so on. We also looked at lots of um, practical examples of how mm. you could mm. um, include elf awareness or even some elements of elf communication um, in the classroom. Uh, and this was, you know, it was a bit self-promoting in a way because I was using my own uh, textbook, <laughs> my co-author textbook, which uh, was trying to... Um, take you know the the sort of theoretical ideas of english as a lingua franca and apply them in a practical way i'm not sure that necessarily every elf advocate would agree with the way that we did it i think looking back on it now it's been five years there are some things that i would perhaps rethink um but yeah that, that was the idea it was to to take those conceptual ideas and actually make them applicable make them into something mm. which the students could actually try and do as teachers mm. yeah a bit of inside baseball here but before we had this interview i contacted you and said but based on what you were saying in your paper that you you make your ideological um position very clear mm. and then say that you you yourself are um creating a filter through which you're going to analyze the contents of what you uh what the data that you collected and also i told you that well i'm so I'm an advocate of English as a lingua franca to the point that I have my own website based on it. Right. So I'm I'm agreeing I'm agreeing with with you on this point. Um, what I found uh, was useful. I mean that the the research of Nicola Galloway and Heath Rose mm. in making students go out and find their own materials mm. and write a listening journal about it from. Uh, as as wide a source base as possible so not from what we would consider to be native speaker but also 
other other sources that use English, mm. uh, I think has been a way that my students have uh, interacted with uh, Englishes that they have never heard before. Mm. How much do you, uh, does your textbook or how much did you at the time recommend that the students themselves go out and try and find non first language users of English, use of English discussing subjects within with which they were interested. Mm. Yeah, I'm, so actually one of the activities in the book is based on Rosen Galloway's uh, work. Um, yeah, I, I, we, we actually did it in the class. Um, so we were looking at, for example, communication strategies. How do people communicate um, across sort of uh, linguistic or cultural um, borders? Uh, and one thing that I found was really useful was looking at um, interviews. Uh, and we looked at interviews between kind of, you know, international film stars and, you know, quote unquote, native speaker interviewers. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I asked the students to kind of uh, to, to look at how each of them communicated, who was who was doing um, the more effective negotiation of meaning. And often it was these international film stars because, you know, they were they were making their ideas clear um they were asking for clarification they were doing all of these things they were exemplifying all of the things that we'd studied um whereas the interviewers were often quite oblivious about how um you know incomprehensible their questions were becoming <laughs> uh, because they were you know they 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 spoke too fast they used words that were very low frequency um they were uh, rambling a bit like I maybe am now and <laughs> and that kind of thing um, so yeah, we we tried to build it into the class. I don't think I sent them out looking for those examples, but I did bring them into the class to exemplify the points that we'd studied in the book. Well, I think you're right in terms of, it, and the the word that you use there is the most important one: negotiation. It's a thing mm -hmm. that um, uh, myself and my colleague um, Aaron uh, came up with. Uh, an entire presentation series based on the concept of negotiation and what were the things mm. that, that you're going to, uh, what are the things that you're going to negotiate? And uh, when I spoke to the, the godmother of Elf, Jennifer Jenkins, she said that, uh, uh, that people who only speak English and have never learned another language to anything other than rudimentary level are aggressively monolingual. And that they don't recognize mm. what they can do to help the other person understand the question. So you can both use the same language, but you're not helping them by, as you say, using low frequency words, speaking too quickly, uh, under emphasizing words and things like that. So, uh, again, this is this is my elf bias coming through, but uh, I, I, I get the, the basis of what you're saying um, mm. now. The study that you talk about in the paper is fairly small scale uh not that it was a, a low participation uh project but there are, there are very few people's voices included in it so you mm. say you've got a book coming out um what did you learn from this research that led to something on a larger scale or will lead to something on a larger scale in the future yeah, so I, as I said, I've been developing this kind of frame analysis approach, um, which is based on, you know, uh, on on various sociological concepts, um, and also kind of early critical theory. Um, and this paper and 
uh, a chapter that I published in a book um, last year and another chapter which is coming out at some point in the future um, are all uh, attempts that I've been making to sort of trial the approach and then on the basis of the uh, the you know the results uh, recalibrate it and and move bits around and and that kind of thing. So what I'm writing about in the book is kind of a development of the ideas that were presented in the paper. Um, but I, I am at heart a qualitative researcher. Um, so you know what I'm interested in doing is trying to see how qualitative research can contribute in some way to larger social change. Um, and I think that the 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 answer or the the conception that I've come to with regards to that is that as a researcher, you can contribute to the things that your participants um, think and believe. Um, and then also, of course, sort of indirectly what the readers of those um, papers will will think and believe. Um, I mean, there, there are lots of methods which have um, taken that kind of approach, right? So you've got critical participatory action research, where the researcher works in a particular community uh, to try and, you know, work with the participants to develop um, projects and, and things which will lead to social change. Um, you've got critical pedagogy, which um, is, you know, an, an approach to pedagogy, which is meant to foster uh, critical thinking and, and uh, again, awareness of social conditions and allow people to move towards, um, you know, changed social conditions where their, where their needs are more suitably met. Um, and and I think this is what I would like to do with my research as well. Um, so it's not necessarily about, um, you know, making it part of a bigger project, but each um, each occasion in which you use this research should be a case of kind of planting seeds. Um, mm. The uh, the early critical theorists, I think, talked about their research as, you know, they, they were writing during the Second World War and, and just after. And they talked about their research as being messages in in, in bottles, right? Um, so you're, you're throwing them into the sea and hoping that someone is going to find them at some point. Uh, and, and they did in that case. Um, and I, I kind of like to think of my own projects in the same way. Um, so it, it's not that I think there's going to be some great upheaval on the basis of doing this research. Um, but I'd hope that, you know, by at least directly speaking to people about their beliefs um, and and cataloging what they believe uh, and also trying to find ways to show or to help people, you know, come to different conclusions based on conflicts between what they believe and what they experience. Um, you know, you can you can contribute to uh, to to them taking control of their situation and, mm -hmm. and maybe changing it. So it's not an encouragement of it. There's not a, a wider narrative that you're uh, working into. It's trying to encourage students' individual interaction with the language that hopefully, um, and not to keep repeating the same line, but this is, is what I say, that they will one month, one you know, one year, 10 years from now, be able to access this skill uh, when it's convenient for them. So it's more like the, the student's individual connection with the language rather than a wider narrative of of what they should be uh, thinking about it. Um, I'm not sure. I think that uh, I I have an idea. Um, I have a, a theory of, of, of language and a theory of society, which I hope that my research would, would lead students... To, to be more in line with 
Uh, mm-hmm. I think every researcher has has a theory that they're working with, right? They have a model. And I, I, and I agree with you. That, and, and, and that's why when I was reading your paper, I thought it was uh, uh, very fair of you to bring out the fact that uh, that you have a you have a focus. Right. And uh, whether your students agree with you or don't agree with you at the end of the course, they are, they are going to be uh, improved, whether they agree with your um, focus or not. Mm, right i think you can't control what participants do with with Mm -hmm. you know the things that you give them with the tools that you give them or the ideas that Mm -hmm. you present to them um but you know i I think that if i if my theory if the if the ideas that i have are are correct um then you would hope that participants would move towards them (laughs) um so you know it, it it is it, it's not really possible to to say, I mean, we're, like I say, we're working with models, we're working with theories, you don't know necessarily that your theory is 100% correct. But I think if you're looking, if you're using a methodology, which focuses on um, internal contradictions, um, between, mm. you know, beliefs, uh, and experiences, and things like that, you are encouraging people to move towards whatever their, um, whatever their most deeply held beliefs are. Um, mm-hmm. And I think most people tend to have very similar beliefs, right? Like, they tend to believe, you know, if I'm learning a language, that language is something that I should be able to use to express myself. That language is something that I should be, I should have some ownership over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about native speakerism, um, if they have that belief, but they also recognize that actually the world is currently structured in so in such a way that they can't really do that, right? Um, right? But, you know, you have to adhere to a certain set of standards if you want to get, um, you know, if you want to pass entrance exams for university, if you want to um, if you want to get certain jobs, if you want to do, you know, <laughs> various different things, you want to move to certain countries. Um, so if, if, there, if there is a, such a, a stark conflict between what most people would want out of language learning and what's mm. realistic for most people out of language learning, then that I would I would think that would encourage um, people to want to change things in such a way that their uh, their beliefs and their values can be realized. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I I brought this up on a on a on a recent interview because I'm allowed to talk about it now because I was an IELTS uh, assessor mm. for ten years, right? And uh, while I I can't talk about the, the the training sessions themselves. I can talk about everything that is um, available publicly. Mm. And there was a notable shift in that decade away from the idea of uh, the native speaker standard to uh, accessible fluency and comprehensibility. Mm. So I think that... I mean, I'm an old man now. I'm in my forties, and and so I, I've 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 noticed this shift over time. Uh, do you think that, I mean, given your own experience of all these things, that there has been a change not only in the syllabi that are being recommended, the textbooks that are being produced, and also the attitudes of the students, even if it has been incremental mm. since you started. Uh, your uh, your work in this area. I think that there has definitely been a shift in in attitudes. I think that you know you see projects like I think it's the the Voices series of textbooks from National Geographic, which try to include um, a more World English's perspective. I think mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. are these changes taking place. 
Oh, and also, also uh, uh, the selections of uh, TED Talks in the Sengage mm-hmm. uh, series as well. Like, there's there's certainly a, a wider range of voices there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's that's all really positive. I think there definitely is um, a movement, and you know, that's what you'd hope, right? If you're doing this kind of research, that's what you'd like to see. Um, I think that there is still, um, you know, we're both working in Japanese universities. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know you you do still have a lot of conflicts where um with for example entrance exams um the students have to prepare they have to prepare to pass entrance exams and those exams do tend to have a very uh a very fixed way of thinking about the language um, you think that's my experience <laughs> at least uh, <laughs> yeah no I would agree with you there yeah um, you know, it's a, a lot of a lot of hunting through dusty old tomes to find out if a particular grammar rule is correct or not. You know, oh, but uh, I thought I saw, I saw a description a while back in a, in a book that was, you know, talking about professors um, spending hours debating whether a particular grammatical form was acceptable because John Donne had used it, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so I think there are still uh, there is kind of based on my current uh, employment. No, no comment. No comment. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think there definitely are still um, structures that need to be uh, challenged and changed in order to kind of realize this sort of world English's vision. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm I'm also a little bit concerned about the way that Elf um, is sometimes talked about as kind of like a a, a business opportunity. Um, and this is probably my own sort of personal you know, political bias coming in again, but, um, you know, I, I don't like, I don't like it when language is framed as being purely utilitarian, you know? Um, so mm. there is, there is some discussion I feel, uh, around, you know, you can use English to achieve these ends as, as a kind of culturally divorced tool. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. I'm suspicious about that, but that's maybe a, a conversation for another time. Well, we can we can talk about it in more abstract terms. Maybe mm. uh, the when I when I talk about culture with my students uh, in my intensive English program, I always put language first mm. because it's the way that we code our understanding of the world with each other. Mm. Uh, that that's their friend. And if they only have one language to use, then that's the only thing that they can use to frame their understanding of what's going on in the world. So what is your opinion of uh, using multiple languages in an English language classroom to express one's opinion? So the concept of translanguaging and code switching and things like that. Do you allow students uh, possibly when there are students from multiple cultural backgrounds to share uh, this kind of um, tapestry of language to express what they actually want to say. Of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I've never, I've never held the idea. Well, that's not true. Early on, very early on in my career, I did hold the idea of English only. Um, mm. I've actually written about that in a, in a, an upcoming chapter. Um, but uh, you know, since since sort of reading into um, or since studying English teaching seriously, mm. um, I've I've 
always been very critical of um, of English only as a policy. Um, so with my students, you know, the, on the first day of the of the course, I usually say, um, you know, is it okay to speak, you know, Japanese or other languages in this class? And they all go, no. I go, yeah, it is. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've, you know, they've taken on this message that they shouldn't. Um, I think there's, you know, firstly, um, purely practical reasons, they're going to do it. Mm. You know, um, whenever students are only speaking English, like, it's because you're next to that table and the students <laughs> everywhere else in the room are, are mixing and, and matching and, and doing all that stuff. Well, it's, um, what I, I, it's what I call the horseshoe effect. If you have a very <laughs> large line. So like the closest uh, seats to the front of the classroom are empty mm. and everyone's on the sides. And, then, and I was on the very first lesson I addressed that and walk out and just go, look, I'm going to be walking around this classroom. I am not going to be mm. one my colleague John calls the sage on the stage. I, I will be among you. So please feel free to use all the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think, you know, um, students have a, have a conception about what a lesson should be, which is some, you know, it's, it's not true for English lessons very often. Um, so I think that that's that's kind of one reason is they're going to do it anyway. So what's the point in trying to stop them? Secondly, mm -hmm. I think it's it's a useful tool. Again, you know, we talked about negotiation. Um, mm. one one for, for students who share the same first language you know they they use their um their first language to scaffold their second language if one of them doesn't right. know a word yeah. and another one yeah. does then they can ask each other and they can give each other the word and that kind of thing um so i think yeah i, I encourage the students to use all of their linguistic resources um but to, to do it kind of um strategically because the goal of the class at the end of the day is to learn english um so if they're doing things in their first language, uh, which they which they could be doing in English, um, you know, then I think th they should be encouraged to to do that because mm -hmm. it's part of their language development. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I you know I, I am an English teacher. I you know my job is to teach students English. Um, <laughs> so I think you know if the students aren't taking opportunities to use English, then um, you know I will encourage them to do that. I'm not going to force them. Um, and you know it's it's kind of largely their judgment as to whether they need to use uh, their first language or not um but you know i do i do want them to use english when they when they uh, when they could be using english um mm -hmm. so i i kind of discuss it with them at the start of courses uh, and encourage them to use all of their linguistic resources but as much as possible to try and use english um, and especially to push themselves in using their english um to try and you know achieve things that they perhaps uh, feel that they can't or they're not completely comfortable with uh, because that's that's where development comes from. Hmm. I want to address one point of your uh, of the study that you include in your paper and uh, your use of critical theory. Yeah. Now, I, I don't consider myself a critical researcher. Uh, a previously referenced um, colleague of mine, Aaron, mm. is. Uh, but I, and I also don't consider myself a rationalist. Mm. Uh, in this, I consider myself someone who uses logic mm -hmm. most of all. Um, what led you down the course of using uh, critical theory to devise this uh, research uh, avenue for you? Mm. So I think since I started doing research, um, I have considered myself a critical researcher. Um, but I think like a lot of sort of young crit critical researchers, 
Um, I wasn't very clear about what that meant, apart from, you know, something vaguely to do with power, something about gender and race and that kind of thing. Intersectionality. Um, other. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think I didn't have a very uh, good grasp of what exactly I meant by critical, other than it was sort of vaguely politically involved research. Um, so I, I started reading into it and um, I was so... Uh, I was influenced partly by um, by reading groups that I joined. Uh, one was was a Marx reading group where we read Marx, obviously, um, and then we also uh, in, in various reading groups, which often involved many of the same people, we read work by you know Bourdieu and um, and, and and other critical those yeah those kinds of people. Mm. Um, but I was I was particularly drawn to um, to the the very early critical theory of um, Max Horkheimer, who was one of the uh, the the well, he was one of the early figures involved in the Frankfurt School and the sort of programmatic right. writer right. on the Frankfurt School, um, and what I liked about uh, him was the fact that he was working with um, a Marxist sort of base of um, a, a sort of Marxist theory originally, um, but then developed it uh, on the basis of sort of changing historical circumstances um, and. I like. I really like this idea of uh, imminent critique. So the idea that you don't critique something um, on the basis of like external standards, um, mm. you critique it on the basis of internal standards. So this within within Marx, you find the idea of um, imminent critique of economics. Right? He looks at the internal contradictions within classical economics and shows that there are sort of these tensions in what would seem to be a, a stable whole. And he thinks that those tensions will lead to revolution, which I think was uh, wrong. Um, but uh, Horkheimer sort of expanded. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Horkheimer Question expanded that, that, <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, that idea of using um, imminent critique. And basically, you know, he said critical social theory should be um, a, a kind of imminent critique of society itself. What does mm. society... Uh, believe what is society's conception of itself um, mm. and what is society's actuality. Um, and, you know, society often doesn't live up to its own professed standards. It doesn't live up to what it wants to be or what it claims that it is. Um, and so I, I, I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about what research should be. Um, it's, you know, taking the the image of society and turning that into kind of like a, a weapon for social change, right? Um, and, so... and, and also that, that that's the whole point of uh, I think the article that we're talking about today mm. in that yes. the image of language as being owned by a certain class of people, uh, mm. i.e. you know the native speaker, uh, means that you are always less than. Mm. And it creates that tension. And so yeah. by reducing the tension between those two, uh between those two user groups i mm. think uh improves the confidence and the ability of the uh the the outer group mm. as has been classified uh to actually use it for their own advantage that's right and i think you know um there is there is an inherent tension in a lot of the the things that we hear in uh tsol or elt or whatever you want to call it um the idea that all Englishes are equal, but some are more valuable. And are those th those two things can't both be true, right? Uh, no, they, they, I mean, they, they... no, no, no. They can. They can both be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
uh, because uh, in in terms of the the, the theory of um, proximal value, mm. uh, you can say that uh, being able to speak Philippine English in the Philippines is more valuable than being able to speak British English in the Philippines. Mm. Uh, and so they they are all of possible proximal equal value if you think mm. about them economically. Right. Uh, no, I, and, I, and not to be a broken record, but economics is not about just making money. It's about social and moral connections as well. So, uh, you know, if you can speak uh, North London English rather than New Zealand English in North London, you're probably going to get better economic outcomes than uh, if you spoke New Zealand uh, accented English. So yeah. th th those po those two things can actually be true at the same time. It depends mm -hmm. where you are. Sure. I, I think if we're talking about, um, like, you know, in, in that case, you're talking about specific kind of locations. Um, but if you're talking about a more kind of global understanding of value, you know, there are certain varieties of English which, which will tend to have more, um, you know, more more currency um in in more quarters uh than others so like um you know like i said before um a variety of english like uh well uh like like scottish english um uh that you know that that will be you know very valuable within certain areas but there are you know within other professions it might be considered a disadvantage uh, because you know some people feel the accent isn't appropriate for certain professional domains or whatever. Um, so I think there are certain you know varieties which have more currency. Just like there are certain uh, passports that have more currency, even though individual passports from individual countries might have more you know uh, you know more sway in in particular areas. Or even though the the holder of that individual passport might not be the best person to be going to that country at that time. So uh, the, the the value of the, the Japanese passport generally is held to be the strongest in the world because nobody worries about Japanese people. But that mm. individual Japanese person might not be the best person to come into your country. You're, you're making right. a value judgment based on uh, a, a group dynamic. Mm. So uh, and it comes back to the 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 absolute core of your paper which is to say someone has used a language such as english since they were born doesn't make them the best person to first of all be able to use it mm. uh, or to teach it or yeah. to judge it based on someone else's performance mm. so I, I think that that's basically the 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 the, the core of your paper uh and so the paper we've been talking about today is Native Speakerism Among Japanese Teacher Trainees, Ideology Framing and uh, Counterframing. Uh, my final question today is uh, about the fact that you were focusing on teacher trainees. Is this the focus that you think that we should be uh, as proponents of English as an international language, uh, English as a lingua franca? Should we be focusing on the teachers or mm. is there something else that we could be doing it kind of goes back to my first question but i want to get back to this 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 point because this is the main point of your paper 
is this something that we should be going and focusing on the teachers? And the reason I ask again is because these are the people who have the direct ability in the classroom to affect the syllabus, affect the uh, textbook, affect the activities that are going on in the class. Um, is this as people who want to uh, promote this ideology, are these the people we should be focusing on? I don't think there's any one particular group we should necessarily be focusing on, because as I said before, I think, you know, it's, there, there, there are big sort of uh, structural issues which are involved here, right? Um, it's not just the case of what goes on in the classroom. Um, in this case, I was doing research with, I mean, in, in a sense, it was kind of a convenient sample. These are my students, right? Um, so this is what I, the people I ended up researching. So, you know, I think there's the idea that like, you know, um, most psychology research is done on psychology undergraduates. Um, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, so you, I, I think they are an important group. Teacher trainees um, are an important group. I would hope that, um, the kind of research that uh, that I'm sort of proposing here, this sort of um, uh, actively involved research, um, I guess, uh, interventionist kind of research, um, could be used with any uh, group of, of stakeholders involved in the industry. It could be students, it could be conference organizers, it could be publishers, it could be whoever. Um, the, the difficulty just comes with accessing those groups. So I think we'd, we, we really need to be doing research with people at various levels of the industry various uh, you know, domains and areas of the industry um, in order to affect the, the the greatest amount of change. So you say research, but what is, do you, do you have a prescription? Um, a prescription in terms of? Do, do you have a, do you have a prescription for what we should be doing uh, right now? So if you were the head of a course, uh, for teacher trainers or even for undergraduate students? Uh, should we be changing the materials that they view, the methodology that we use in our classrooms? Um, do you have any uh, suggestions for that? Um, I guess probably very nebulous ones. <laughs> I think probably... Please, please feel free. <laughs> I think probably we need to, um, to to think about, you know, changing materials Um raising awareness of of the kinds of issues that we've been talking about around native speakerism um and around english as lingua franca and translanguaging and all of these these topics um and you know also trying to not just not just transmit things i mean you get in that sense it, it starts to sound a bit like you know the kind of frarian model of uh, banking education where you know the, mm. the students mm. are you know vessels that you fill up with knowledge that you've predetermined Right, um, right. And I think the the research approach that I'm trying to lay out is one where you know your your goal is really to raise the consciousness of of participants or students or teacher trainees whoever, and um, by putting them in that I think again Freire says uh, dialectical relation with their social reality. Um, so you're not telling them what to think, um, mm. but you're trying to raise awareness of of you know of the the way that they live um mm. their beliefs and and trying to trying to get them to consciously mediate between those two um and hopefully that will that will that will lead to the kind of desired change that you're looking for so it's not just it's not just about what you teach but about um how you encourage people to to think and deliberate and discuss which i think is maybe the most important thing 
Well, to finish this uh, interview on that topic of the dialectic, mm. uh, we both spend hours and hours a week in the class. Mm. And uh, do you think the dialectic is it's shifting? Do you think that uh, the students that you interact with on a on a daily basis are kind of taking on this in an in an active sense, like uh, Japanese? We both we both work in Japan. So do you think your your Japanese students are feeling more positive about their their role as users of English as Japanese mm. rather than in relation to American or British English? Yeah, that's a good question. Um I I I feel that there's a surface change at least. Um mm. so you know, my my students will often talk positively about, you know, things like world Englishes um, and, you know, their their ability to speak with people and, and communicate and that kind of thing. But there is um, again, you know, this is this is sort of what drew me to the idea of framing. Um, you can in the way that they frame things, you can detect kind of unconscious, perhaps biases um, where they they return to the image of the native speaker um and the 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 importance of you know inner circle standard quote unquote forms of english um that it it seems to be like a fallback position um so i i i i i think of it as kind of like a motten bailey approach in the classroom um when they're you know they're very comfortable to uh, to to explore the Bailey, um, mm. they'll, they'll go, they'll go out and they'll, they'll talk about, you know, world Englishes and that kind of thing. But <laughs> when they're in a corner, they'll retreat to the Mott, which is more secure because the, you know, it's, it's, it's a stable idea that there are, there are certain standards and certain people to which you can aspire. Um, and you know, and that's, that's a comfortable place for a lot of, uh, the students, I, I think still. Um, so I think there is, there is certainly a change. Um, but I don't know necessarily how deep that change is and how easily it could change back. Hey, well, it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting way to finish uh, an interview uh, by introducing a, a, a point of logic discussion, the Mott and Bailey. Um, but I'm sure that many of our listeners uh, understand uh, what, what you're talking about. So we've been speaking today uh, with Robert J. Lowe, uh, from Ochinomizu University on the paper Native Speakerism Among Japanese Teacher Trainees, Ideology, Framing and Counterframing. And thank you very much for your time today, Robert. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.